straightforward, somewhat uh, maybe obvious question this morning as we, we look at our text today and we continue in the series we're in. And we're simply going to ask this today. What does a Christian look like? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? That may be a pretty obvious question. Hopefully it is, but um, pretty good one to ask in a church that proclaims, professes to be Christian, to be followers of Jesus. It's an important thing to at least talk about. Um, depending on who you ask, you may get very different answers. Uh, there's a, uh, an organization called, I forget exactly, Pew and Forum Report, I think is the name of it. And they just do lots and lots of surveys and studies on religion and what people believe and what they think. And it's all religions, but they ask a lot of questions and then they give all these statistics and they tell a lot of things. And sometimes I like to read those just to see what people say Christianity is, what they say following Jesus looks like. And you'll get all these different answers and it depends on who you ask. But if you ask just the average person on the street, maybe that's not a believer or maybe it's kind of, you know, I might go to church every once in a while, but not real serious. A lot of times you get a very uh, similar answer and it usually goes something like this. You'll ask, well, what does it mean to be a Christian or what does it mean to be saved or what does it mean to go to church? And what you'll get is it's to be a good person and do your best. Live the best you can. And if you do that, God will accept you more times than not. That's the answer that comes back. Just try try that sometime. If you have some friends that maybe aren't aren't, uh, really seeking to follow Jesus, maybe they don't know him. Just ask them what they think Christianity is. And oftentimes that'll be the answer you get. Or sometimes you'll ask the question, you'll get something like, well, it just means you go to church. You, you, You join a church and you go and you go on Sunday. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And sometimes that's the answer that comes back. Sometimes we'll take it a step past this. Some will get real uh, devoted to going to church. And then they'll say, well, what it means to be a Christian is you go to church and you align yourself with other Christians, which which, by the way, as I'm going through this, a lot of these have parts that are true. So I'm not not saying they're all wrong, but let's just talk, think through them. But sometimes they'll say you go to church and you align yourself with other Christians and then you hunker down together and you keep the evil world out and you you get together and you you just you get in this little uh, what I like to call a holy huddle. We get together and it's just us and all the bad the world. Hey, the world's a scary place. There's a lot of bad things going on. So it's kind of comforting to say, well, let's get together and it'll just be us. And sometimes that's the answer you get. Now, sometimes you'll get um, if someone's antagonistic to Christianity or to religion or faith or whatever it may be, they may say, well, what it really is, is just a bunch of rules that you come together and you get some rules and they, the, the church gives you rules and they tell you how to live and that's, that's what it is. And then they, they start to live by the rules and then they look down on everybody else. That, that's what Christianity is. I've heard people say that. That's what it is. You've got your rules and then it's a way so you can divide people up. Here's the people that follow the rules and here's the people that's not. And that's what church is. And it really depends. And, and the sad part of that, that last part, that, you know, divide them up in the rules and let's look down. That happens a lot of times inside the church. That's not, that's not just antagonistic to the church. Uh, There's a lot of churches that kind of operate that way. But what I want us to see this morning is what does it really look like? Remember the series that we've been in, we've been just calling it Walking with Jesus. And we've been spending time in the Gospels looking at what Jesus says and what he does and where he goes. And this morning as we come to this question, I want us to come to it looking at it through Jesus's eyes and what he did and what he said. And what we're going to be looking at this morning is the call of one of Jesus's disciples We're going to look at the call of Matthew. So we're going to be in Matthew 
chapter 9 this morning. If you want to turn there, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. You may want to mark it down just, just for your own reference. This, this story we're going to look at also takes place in uh, Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5. So it's in three of the four Gospels. And what we're going to see, though, this morning is this call of Matthew where he decides that he's going to follow Jesus. And it's literally one verse he goes to following Jesus. But then something happens right after that that he starts to do. And Jesus really puts his stamp of approval on what Matthew's doing and what's happening. So I want us to take kind of Matthew and this this story and this picture and get a good idea of what it looks like to be a Christian, what it looks like to follow Jesus, because we have a real good picture here. So uh, what, what better way to define what that is than by looking at Jesus's words? And what he says and how he spends his time. So let's read Matthew chapter nine. We're going to start in verse nine. And we're really just going to look at five verses this morning. It's pretty short, but there's a lot there. So let's read Matthew nine verses nine through 13. And it says, and Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at those, those five verses together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the inspiration of it. We thank you for keeping it for us, the transmission of it, that we have a reliable word from you that we can look to, that uh, we have your very uh, words and thoughts and hearts written for us that we can come to them and spend time and look at it. I pray this morning that we would align ourselves with what you're doing and who you are, that we would see more clearly what it means to follow you the way you've called us. We pray that we would do so. We pray that we'd be faithful to your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and open our minds and our hearts to see clearly what you would have for us. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this morning, as we're looking at that kind of big heading, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does a Christian really look like? Biblically, there's three questions I want us to ask, and we're really looking mostly at Matthew here in this. But the questions are, where do we go? What do we do and how do we do it? So where do we go? What do we do and how do we do it? So let's start with the where do we go? Look at verse nine with me as we kind of set the scene here as Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. It's always kind of an interesting story when you read this and you start to think about it. Here's Matthew. He's at his job. What we know from the scripture is Matthew is a tax collector. He was a Jewish man who worked for the Roman government. And what that means is, if you don't know much about the the background here, that's okay. But what that means is Matthew was not a popular guy. Right. He lived in a time where Rome was occupying the people. They were the government over it. They didn't treat people all that great, especially the Jewish people. And most Jews resented them. They didn't like Rome. And here's a Jewish man that's decided to take and he's gone to work for the occupying government. 
And the reason they weren't liked was not only that he worked for Rome, but also many times the tax collectors had a lot of leeway in how they taxed people. So what would happen is a lot of times is they'd take advantage of the people and they'd tax them more and they'd pocket some and they'd keep it. And so people didn't like those that worked for Rome, especially Jewish people didn't like their Jewish brothers then working for Rome. But on top of that, they didn't like that they took advantage of them. And the scene we have here is Matthew sitting there and he's working. He's, he's collecting taxes. And from the context, we know he most likely was sitting by the Sea of Galilee and he probably was collecting taxes of fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, which is a real interesting juxtaposition here when you think about it. Because what we're getting is Jesus calling Matthew to come follow him to be one of his disciples. And if you know anything about the other disciples, many of them were Jewish fishermen. So Jesus is calling Matthew, the guy that they wouldn't care too much for, to come follow him. And he's asking him to come into the situation of, of following Jesus and living with him and learning from him. And not only that, not only is it some fishermen, some Jewish fishermen, there's also another guy that's following Jesus. It's in this little crowd that's coming along. His name is Simon the Zealot. And we know very little about Simon in the scriptures, but just that that's what he's called. That's what he's referred to. Simon the Zealot. And most religious uh, scholars think that Simon the Zealot was part of the Jewish group, the Zealots. Makes sense, right? Simon, Simon the Zealot, that he's a zealot. And what, what they did and what they were about is they were all about opposing Rome. They were radicals. They wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And so there's this real interesting thing happening that Jesus turns to the tax collector, the guy that nobody likes, and he says, come follow me, and he gets up. And so as we start to think about where do we go as followers of Jesus, a lot of times it's, I want us to look at it this way. It's simply where God leads us. In this case, very literally, Jesus turning to Matthew and saying, come with me. And he says, "Okay." But the second part of that is sometimes it's going to be where it's not the most comfortable situation. Jesus has just called Matthew to step in with some guys that he's probably been taxing, possibly unfairly. And not only that, he's asking him to walk alongside a revolutionary that's completely opposed to who Matthew works for. And he brings them together. So what we get the first part here, I want us to see about where do we go as we go where God leads. And sometimes that may not be the most comfortable situation. It's kind of like Jesus going and saying, OK, I'm going to grab a couple guys from the tea party over here. And I'm going to grab a couple of guys from the Occupy Wall Street. Come with me. We're going to be a group together. Right. Or, or maybe it's it's I'm going to grab a guy who's a white supremacist and then I'm going to grab some minority guys over here. And I'm going to say, come on, let's go and push them together and start to And you go, whoa, you start to get the picture of what's happening here. And he invites Matthew to step into this. So what we get is sometimes it's not going to be the easiest situation beyond that. When we start to see where do we go, sometimes it's going to be you walk away from what you were doing. The picture here is Matthew is working. He's working as a tax collector. He's at his tax booth. He's doing his job. And Jesus says, let's go. And he says, OK. And he gets up and he walks away from this job. Now, I'm not telling you that when you become a Christian, you have to quit your job. But what I am saying is sometimes the way you are walking in your life, when you become a Christian, you're going one way and it means you're going to turn and you're going to start to go the other way. It may be a radical change in your life that happens when you become a Christian. So when we start to talk about. What what it is, where are we going? It's it's to follow God where he calls. And sometimes it's going to be a radical change. We see that with the other disciples a lot of times Um, earlier when he's calling and they're out in the boat and they're fishing. They leave their families. 
They just up and leave their business. You see this a lot. Jesus is calling people and they're dropping what they're doing and they're coming with them. Jesus often talked that way. He would say, you need to love me above all else. And that means sometimes you're going to sacrifice other things to follow me. So that's the first part of what we get. But then the second part I want us to see is in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. And it says, and Jesus reclined at the table in the house and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And as we start to talk about Matthew starting to follow Jesus, there's a little background that's not here in Matthew's gospel that we need to fill in that actually Luke tells us about. It's in Luke chapter five. Luke tells us this little party where they're they're reclining at the table with the tax collectors and the sinners and Jesus and this in uh, Luke chapter five. It says that they're at Matthew's house, that it's Matthew who puts this party on. And if you cross reference that or you look at it later, it actually says Levi's house. Just just so we're clear and we don't get confused. Matthew is Levi. Levi is Matthew. They're the same guy, kind of like Simon Peter. They've all got some different. Sometimes it gets confusing. You're reading one gospel and then you're reading the other and you're going, wait. Well, that, that is Matthew. It's the same guy. So what, what it's showing us is that Matthew leaves and follows Christ. He gets up and leaves his job. And then we don't know exactly how soon, but it seems to be pretty quickly after that, Matthew decides to throw a big party at his house and invites all his friends and all the people he knows to come there. So the second part I want us to see is when we talk about where do we go when we decide to follow Jesus, when you become a Christian, it's where God leads. But then the second part is it's where there's a need. Where we see Matthew going, he actually doesn't go anywhere. He goes to his house. It's his house where this party's taking place. But what happens is he's going to where there's a need. What he's done is he goes and he invites all his friends to come to his house. He invites them in to meet Jesus. So you have this really uh, neat picture of Matthew inviting all these guys, all the people he knows into his house. And what I want us to see is a lot of times becoming a Christian and deciding to follow after Jesus doesn't necessarily mean selling your house and moving to be a foreign mission or moving to Africa or moving to wherever. Although it might say that doesn't happen. That might be the case. But a lot of times it's just stepping in to speak the truth right where you are, right where there's a need. And the reality is when our when our hearts are open to who Jesus is and what he's doing, the needs become apparent everywhere. You start to see with spiritual eyes, you start to see needs all over the place. And as the case with Matthew, it's right where he is. So you get this picture of him inviting all these people in. And I want you to think about as you think about being a Christian or what it means to follow Jesus. And this really kind of stung hit me this this week as I read this and I read this picture, this neat picture of Matthew inviting all of these people to his house. Um, have you ever thrown a party? Have you ever taken and had a party at your house where the express purpose was simply to invite each and every person there to meet Jesus Christ? Have you ever done that? That kind of stings to me because I started to think about that, that that's the first thing Matthew does. He invites everybody there to recline and sit and have a meal with Jesus. And you see that. And it's such a neat picture of of him wanting his friends to come and be with Jesus and to spend time with them and and answer questions. And I want us to see as, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, that we should be seeking to invite people in. If you're visiting with us today, I don't know if we have anyone that's visiting or you've been invited by a friend or maybe this is your. We're glad you're here. If you're here and you have questions about who Jesus is, maybe you don't know. Maybe you just come to church one week because my friend asked me or maybe I just give it a try. 
We are so glad you're here if that's the case. We want to welcome you in. We want you to be able to freely ask questions and express your doubts and let us know where you're coming from. Just so you know, I I often forget to say it, but we have a hospitality time right after the service every week. The first Sunday we have a full meal, so make sure you come for that and eat with us. But we also have a hospitality time every week in there, and that's exactly what it's there for. For you to come in and ask questions and be welcome in and us to sit around together and talk about who Jesus is. So if you weren't aware of that, please stay. Please stay today and sit and talk and ask your questions. We'd love to have you. So as what we get here about the where we go, as we, as we wrap up this first question, the where we go is where God leads and where there's a need. All right? So that's the first part. The second part, the second question I want us to ask is the what do we do? What do we do when we seek to follow Christ? How do we spend time as Christians? And we're going to take this two ways. And the first way is verse 11. And it's this, verse 11, I'm going to preface verse 11 with this is what it's not. This is not what following Jesus looks like. It's the opposite, but it's going to help us see what it is by looking at what it's not first. So read verse 11 with me. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said, what well, is talking about what they see is Jesus sitting with this group of people, the sinners and the tax collectors, that they said, The Pharisees saw this. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And what's happening here is you have this wonderful scene of Matthew inviting his friends in to meet Jesus. And then you've got the religious leaders standing off to the side saying, why is he spending time with those people? And what's behind that is an arrogance It's a misplaced trust in their own righteousness. It's a false assumption that they've got it together and these people over there with Jesus are all wrong and messed up. And what you get is a looking down on others. Oh, we're we're the righteous and we've got it together. Why would he spend time with those people over there? And I say that to say, as we begin this morning to talk about what do you do? That is not the Jesus of the Bible. I get emotional when I think about it because it makes me angry. To see people who come and go, oh, you shouldn't spend time with those people over there like they've got it all together. Because that misses the very heart of what we're about. The very heart of who Jesus is and what he taught and what he did. So it is not that. It is not dividing people up into, oh, those are the messed up sinners over there. And over here's the good people. Now, in Matthew's gospel, you'll notice that he does say he calls, he says, now the tax collectors and sinners are reclining with Jesus. And he said, well, it seems to be that he's 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 uh, singling these people out. They're the sinners over here. Right. But what what really saying now, Matthew was a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience and, and his audience would have known as they read this, the tax collectors and the term when he says and sinners that there were all these Jewish laws, like laws of of ritual and purity and cleanness and all these things that they did. And those that didn't follow the laws were considered, they'd call them sinners. Now, that's not to say that we're not all sinners. We are all sinners. The Bible clearly speaks to that over and over. But it was a way of saying religious versus irreligious. Basically, these people over here are ones that aren't seeking God at all. That's kind of what he was saying. So just so we're clear on that, what he's really saying there. So the first part that we get is what it is not. It's not drawing some lines in the sand and then looking down on people. That's not what it is. And Jesus is going to speak directly to that in a moment. 
But the reality is it's and, and that really speaks to even the misnomer of what well, we need to get together as Christians and hole up together and just be us and push all the bad stuff out. Right. Because what happens when we do that is we're drawing a line in the sand and saying those are the evil people and we're the OK people. So let's keep them out. And that is not what Christianity is. That's not what Jesus was about. And that's not where he went or what he did. So that's the first part. Now let's look at the positive side of it, because Matthew, using Matthew as an example and what's happening here is a great picture. See, Matthew throws this party and it's not readily available on just a surface reading. But the reality is the party that Matthew throws would have been a great cost to himself. It would have cost him a lot to throw this big party and invite all these people to come and sit with Jesus and have this meal. And they're all there. And what we start to get of the picture of what do we do it's, it's a great picture of what Matthew's doing here. We begin to reorder our lives to center around who God is and glorifying him. What we see here is Matthew taking what he has and what he's been given and his, his wealth and his things, and he starts to spend it on inviting people in to introduce them to who Jesus is. He's using what he has to point to God and his glory. It's a, it's a really neat picture a lot of times we look at church, we look at uh, religion, uh, coming to church, coming to Sunday school, maybe being part of a small group. A lot of times we look at it as kind of like a bicycle wheel, right? A bicycle wheel has uh, a hub at the, in the middle, and it's got all the spokes that come out of it. You know what I'm talking about? Right, right in the middle, there's usually like the, the hard, the kind of solid part, and then all the, all the spokes that come out. And oftentimes we look at being a Christian or being part of a church or being religious or however you want to say it is, is one or two of the spokes on the wheel. I go to church on Sunday morning and that's one of the spokes. And maybe I come to the prayer breakfast on Tuesday morning and that's one of the spokes. And then I have a quiet time and that's one. And then my family and my friends and my job and the way I relate to people and what I do and my hobbies, that's all the other spokes. And so being a Christian is just one or two or three of those things in that. But What scripture begins to show us and the way it paints the picture is it's not one of the spokes coming to church or doing those few things. It's not one of the spokes. When you become a Christian and you know who Jesus is and you come face to face with the living creator, God of the universe, he becomes the hub at the center and everything flows out of that. Our relationships, the way we do our jobs, the way we relate to our families and our friends and our hobbies and everything starts to flow out of him being the center, not just an add on thing that we stick onto the side. And that's what you start to see with Matthew. He goes, I'm going to invite everybody I know and I'm going to invite them to my house. and I'm going to spend my money on on meeting them where they are and, and inviting them in to meet Jesus. And you start to see him reordering everything in his life to glorify God. And that's the picture that starts to emerge in Scripture about what we're to be doing, what we're to be about as Christians. That's why Jesus says, your way you love me, every other relationship in your life should look like hate in comparison because you love me so much. That's the way Jesus spoke. He didn't ever speak of you fit me in as one of the spokes on the wheel. That doesn't add up with what Scripture says. And as I say that, you may say, it's a little overboard, isn't it? Really? Everything? Everything's supposed to come and flow out of who he is? Isn't that a little bit saying too much? But the reality is when you meet Jesus and you know who he is and what he's done for you, 
when you meet the creator God of the universe that made you to be in relationship with him and you come face to face with him and he changes your heart and you see him for who he is, there's nothing you can do that will ever be too much. It's not possible. And the wonderful thing that scripture tells us is when you start to align with that and you start to make him the center, you'll be happier and happier. You'll be more and more joyful. You'll never, you'll never go, oh man, I can't believe I did all that for God. Never. You'll never look back and go, I wish I would have spent more time watching football. It's just not going to happen. Especially when your team loses. Right? You spend all this time on these things and you oh, and then it doesn't even matter. We spend so much time on things that aren't that important. So the reality is the second part of what we do, what we're to be doing is we're seeking to glorify him with all that we have. Every bit of it. Make him be the center and let everything flow out of that. We're seeking to glorify him, to point others to who God is and what he's done. And then the last part that leads us to, well, how do we do it? How is that possible? How do we begin to do that? And I say this often, and I think it's, I want you to really think about these words. Uh, we are, the how we do it is we are to extend the grace that we have received. We're to love others the way that Christ has loved us. And I want you to be thinking about that as we read verses 12 and 13, because when you have that picture of the gospel, the center of we're to love others as Christ has loved us, it gives it opens up verses 12 and 13 and what Jesus says here. And he says this. But when he heard it, when he heard the Pharisees saying, oh, why is he spending time with those people? Jesus says this. Those who are well have no need of physician for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, what Jesus is saying is I came for the sick. And when you read in context here and you start to see what he's saying, I came for the sick. Well, who are the sick? It's clear from the from the context that Jesus is saying the sick are the sinners. But then the next question comes, who are the sinners? And the reality of Scripture all the way through is the sinners is all of us. I came for the sinners, and that's everyone. So when Jesus says, I came for the sinners, not the righteous, what he's really saying is, what he's really getting at is, I came for those that realize that they're sinners. He's not saying, those people over there are righteous, so I'm not going to spend time with them. He's saying, those people over there think they're righteous. Those people over there are self-righteous. They think I've got it all together, so I'm going to look down on other people. And if that's the case, you're missing the very heart of who you are and who God is. You've missed it. Because the reality of what Jesus is saying is that we're all sinners. And I came for sinners. I came for people who can't save themselves. And that's all of us. And then he quotes Hosea 6, which we read this morning. That was our first reading. Jesus makes his point to the religious elite that would know the scriptures so well. And he goes right to Hosea 6. And he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So what is he saying by that? What does mercy actually mean? What is Jesus really saying there? Mercy means I desire steadfast love. That's what Jesus is saying. I desire desire steadfast love, not religion. I desire people who are going to love God and love others as the way I've loved you, not people who are going to make rules and divide people up into the haves and the have-nots and look down on them. Right? You see what he's saying? That we're all sinners and we're all hopeless, 
hopelessly lost apart from Christ. And when we get that, when we get that picture of what Jesus is saying, when we get when those divisions come down, the judgment of of looking down on all those people are bad. We realize that it's all of us together and Jesus is the only righteous one. There is no looking down because we're all in the same spot. There's no oh, look at those people. They're so bad. No, no, it's it's look at all of us. We're all sinners and Jesus is so good. And that's all there is. And that's what Jesus is saying. And that's what he's he's leading them to point to. The reality is when you grasp what he's saying, that he came to save us in spite of ourselves, that Jesus does what we can't do for us, that he loves us so much that he's willing to come and lay his life down for us sinners. It frees you to open your eyes and to see everyone in the way that they really are and to see God for who he is. And what that does is it allows us to love everyone equally. (laughs) Right? That's that's what Jesus said over and over. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart and your mind and your soul and your entire being and to love others the way you love yourself. You're to love everyone equally, equally because of what Jesus has done for you. And that's what he's saying here. And that's the picture you get of Matthew. Right? He's surrounded by all these friends that are so lost that don't know anything. So what does he do? He takes all that he has and he starts to just go out and love them and invite them in and invite them to Jesus. So the picture, this beautiful, beautiful picture of emerges of what it means to follow Jesus. This wonderful, radical, freeing love that happens when we realize that we're saved, not of our own doing, not because I'm better or I'm so good, but because he first loved me. It frees us to love others in the same way. And it leads us to this steadfast love, this mercy and not religion. It leads us to loving others and just pointing them to Jesus. And it becomes this great picture. So as we consider this morning what it really means to be a Christian, what it really means to follow Jesus, we follow him where he leads And then he shows us that where there's a need and then we can turn and we can extend the grace, the love that he's given us to others. And when that happens, it results in a radical self forgetfulness where we just love all those around us and we point them to Jesus and what he's done for us. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Oh, that we would be that type of people that people would know us for our radical, self-forgetful love that we care so much about others that we just want to invite them in to meet the risen Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, uh, we thank you. We thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for the simplicity of the message that you came to do what we could never do, that you do it for us and then you freely give it to us, that you open us up and that we just, uh, all that you ask is we, we proclaim your name. We thank you for what you've done for us. We cling to your righteousness that you've given us on, our, on your behalf. I thank you for that. I pray that we would be quick to, to share that love with others, but that we would do so in a self-forgetful, uh, self-effacing way, that we would always go forth and uh, just love people as you loved us. We thank you, thank you for all you've done for us, and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.